It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. We'll commemorate the end of XP today. <laughs> this is the last update for Windows XP. And we'll talk about a new exploit in OpenSSL that's got everybody shaken in the knees. Heartbleed, our topic next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 450, recorded April 8th, 2014. How the Heart Bleeds. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security, your privacy online. And, of course, there was no better person when I first thought of doing this show than Steve Gibson to host it. He's the explainer-in-chief. He's got his finger on the pulse of security. He's an expert on technology. And he's here right now. Hi. <laughs> There's his finger. My uh, finger on the pulse. On the pulse. Pulsing. Yeah, pulse. It is literally pulsing and today. Oh, boy. boy. Oh, oh yes. boy. So I was saying to you before we began, before you pressed the, yeah, but while you had your finger on the record button, yeah. that, um, that I was holding on to today's topic, the originally planned for today's topic that I've been working on for some time. Uh, which is harvesting entropy. Uh, we've talked all around the issue, but I'm now in the middle of it because I am working on Squirrel's Entropy Harvester. And so I'm like really tuned up for like exactly what are the challenges that a developer faces. And I thought this would just make a fabulous podcast. And so I was like until middle of the morning, I was holding on to it, you know, knowing that we would have to talk about about Heartbleed, but, you know, still planning to make it a bullet point at the beginning of the show. And finally, that resolution just collapsed because just too much was happening. And I thought, okay, no, this is what the podcast is for, is for exactly this kind of thing. You know, I'd be really annoyed if this happened on Wednesday, rather, you know, because then we'd have to wait a week. But, you know, it, it gave it to it. It gave us uh, you know, this fabulous opportunity last night. So uh, today's podcast is titled How the Heart Bleeds. <laughs> and the heart bleed uh, exploit, of course, an open SSL exploit that's been uh, in all the news today. Yes. And, of course, much overhyped, as always, yeah. much misunderstanding about what it is and why it is. You know, like, do we need to change our passwords? You know, what does it mean? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, obviously, nowhere will you get more comprehensive coverage of it than here, because I have spent the last 24 hours pretty much, you know, refocused on this as I kept getting pulled away from what we were planned to talk about, which we'll talk about in two weeks. And I'll actually have numbers and interesting, you know, additional data for that that topic because I'll actually have already written the entropy entropy harvester by then. So we'll we'll have some some a different approach. But famously, I mean as if there wasn't I mean actually this is sort of a perfect coincidence that we also are this is the long awaited April 8th 
end of XP, doomsday, XP apocalypse, and so forth. <laughs> and nothing happened except that the open source system completely melted down. You know, the non-Microsoft SSL library. And Microsoft, of course, had no problem with, with SSL at all. So, uh, you know, that's where we are. Um, well, we're going to talk about this final second Tuesday month finally arriving. Uh, I have a bunch of fun miscellaneous stuff, uh, including a must-see documentary recommendation. And depending upon when you hear the podcast and which theaters it's still in, you may be able to see it. I saw it yesterday and tweeted that it was the best $6 I had ever spent in my life. And what was funny was I was with a an elderly neighbor um, who said that as exactly that phrase as I was like – writing that, getting ready to tweet the news of what I had found. Uh, and then a quick update on Squirrel and Spinrite. And with, then we're going to dip into, you know, absolutely front-to-back coverage of what this open SSL vulnerability means uh, to websites, to the industry, to end users, and, and where it came from and what it is exactly. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's take a tiny little break as we prepare. You can gird your loins or whatever it is you do before each and every security now. Have a cup of coffee, I'm thinking. Uh, and we will talk a little bit about our sponsor, audible.com. And I probably don't have to tell a whole lot of you what Audible is. It's the world's largest bookstore, audiobooks galore, 150,000 titles by the best readers, the best books. Pretty much everything comes out on Audible now. Um, new celebrity bios and memoirs. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, James Gandolfini bio. I've got to read that. I was such a fan of him as uh, as Tony yes. Soprano. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s... No, who is that? No, I'm sorry. That's uh, not not uh, Robert Downey Jr. That's Rob Lowe. I always confuse the two. The Rob Lowe biography is called Love Life. Oh, boy. Uh, Judy Greer. I don't know what you know me from. Confessions of a co-star. Paul Stanley, <laughs> his story of being, a, what is he, the bassist for Kiss? Dirty Daddy, Chronicles of a Family Man turned filthy comedian. Bob Saget, Carol Leifer, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. The story of the Hiltons, an American dynasty. Wow, these just all came out. I'm currently listening to it. I know our geek audience probably more interested in Dogfight. And it is a great book. Fred Vogelstein is a... Uh, writer for Wired Magazine, and covered the Apple versus Google war, starting with when they were friends. Then uh, Apple came out with the iPhone. It's the, it's the behind-the-scenes story of the Apple iPhone and the Android phone. And it, I'm learning stuff. And, you know, here we are. We've been covering this the entire uh, time. And I'm learning stuff I'd never heard. I mean, just amazing. Neat. Great can research. You, can, you, can you search for rogue code? Two words. <laughs> Uh, this, yeah, this would be on here, too. This is uh, Mark Rosinovich's uh, uh -huh. book. Yeah, I'm, but I don't I'm, know if it's an Audible, is it? I, w I was wondering if it was there yet. Um, he sent me it, a note saying it's going to be. Well, okay, zero, day, I, zero Day is. Trojan okay, Horse is. Tro yep, so his first two are. I'm currently reading number three. He sent me the, the galleys. Yes, yeah, so they're recording uh, it right now. So when it's out, right. they'll have it. Yep. Okay. The reason we mention these, actually, you know what? Zero. Which of the two, Zero Day or Trojan Horse? I think Zero Day, right? The first one. I like them both. There, and I'll, and I'll talk about it during our miscellany section here, um, because it's another one of Mark's 
it's like a fictionalized version of this podcast. It's like it's like <laughs> what we're what we're going to talk about today. If if you know if he wrote about it a year ago, right? We'd be all, we all be going, oh my god! I mean, it would be technically perfect yep. because, of course, his stuff is, and so it's it's like a, an exactly correct fictionalized series of events surrounding vulnerabilities or you know you know malware exploits and so forth so i i really do think of it like the novel the novelization and fictionalization of the security now podcast and who better to write it than uh, mark racinovich the uh, yeah. guy behind microsoft's sys internals they bought sys internals one of the great programmers for windows i was thinking about jeff hawkins because we had him on yesterday on triangulation uh he's of course the founder of palm Oh, oh boy. no kidding! Oh, I will watch. You that. gotta oh, watch I'm, it. Oh, good, good, good. And his and, and I see you're showing on intelligence, which is his book. Yep, we talked about that. We talked about Numenta, his new company. He's released the first software from Numenta, software designed to work the brain works. He says artificial intelligence can't work if you're building a Turing machine, but if you emulate the biology of the brain, yep. you can. And yep. he's doing it, and it's fascinating. He he says. Palm was just a sideline, a, 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 a detour, because he was always a neuroscientist, first and foremost. Um, and uh, he's back to it. And he's just a gr- I love Jeff. This book is must-read uh, on intelligence. So there's, though here's the point. Audible has so many good books. The hard part is picking one. But you are going to get one free if you visit audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Science fiction, you bet. A nonfiction, you bet. Young adult, children's, yes. Classics. There's a Philip K. Dick short story collection just released. One of the things they do is they they are recording the classics in science fiction in the Audible Frontiers program, which is wonderful. Um, boy, I want to get this one. I love Philip K. Dick's stuff. And, of course, you've seen the movies. Flash Boys, a new one from Michael Lewis. Pick one. Uh, you're going to get a credit towards any book, and most of the books, about 99%, are uh, single credit books. So that means you get the whole book. If you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you'll be, oh, Ed Catmull's written a book. Oh, wow. He's uh, one of the founders of Pixar. He's written a book about creativity. I got to listen to that. Holy cow. Um See, this is the problem with Audible. <laughs> it's so much great stuff. First one's free, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Listen and enjoy. I, I listen to Audible books all the time. All right, what do we, where do we start? It is uh, D-Day for XP. Yeah, it is. And everyone by now knows that I think it's going to be a big dud. That uh, Just you know, like Y2K. Uh, well... Uh, differently, I, I think Y2K didn't happen because people really did fix the machines, which really were going to have a problem. Um, and so, so you know, I remember I was up at midnight waiting to see if anything was going to happen and nothing did. And this, this is different because I'm not convinced that there is a problem. And you know, it's it's even made mainstream news now. It's like, oh my God, you know, this is you know the 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 end of Windows XP after 13 years and blah blah blah. And and my position is that there could be some unknown problems in XP, but 
all of what we are seeing, with few exceptions, are problems in the apps, in the things that run on the operating system. That's what gets exploited. The browser gets exploited. Flash, Java, you know, I mean, this podcast is all about those things. It's true that there are occasionally kernel OS level problems. But, you know, for example, even the topic of today's podcast, it's not about Apache or about Linux. It's about OpenSSL, a library running on top of the operating system. So my argument is nothing is going to happen. I mean, that that all of the things that we run on XP, they continue to be patched, except for Office 2003. That stops. But and I IE, get... I've got to remember, IE also is not going to be updated anymore. And it, True. In fact, it hasn't but, been updated in a while on XP. Right. And so, as we've said, Don't Chrome use or IE. Firefox. Yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, I think this is a tempest in a teapot. I could be wrong, but I'm happy to plant my flag and we'll all see whether I end up with egg on my face or not. I think, well, I mean, I'm going to keep using it. I haven't patched since uh, 08, I think it was. And uh, and I'm just fine. And I'm not going to stop right now working on Squirrel and then on Spinrite 6.1. I'm not delaying those in order to move to Windows 7 because for me, it's a, it's a huge, I mean, it's weeks of downtime to set everything up again. And it is unfortunate that that's what Microsoft has done with their operating system. You just can't move everything to a new platform, but you just can't. You have to reinstall everything. So, um, you know, we'll see how this goes. There there really is no news. You were showing a minute ago a, 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 a clock that Microsoft has created. I mean, they're... Microsoft is milking this for all they can um, in order to generate revenue to force people off a, a platform which is working just fine. And and you've probably seen in the news also that some major governments, I know over in the UK, several large organizations have paid lots of money to for the privilege of continuing to receive the XP patches, which the rest of us won't be getting any longer. So Microsoft is now turning their vulnerabilities into a revenue stream for the first time, which, I mean, remember that this when the idea of getting auto-patched first happened, it was really controversial. We've all been, you know, we, we've gone from that extreme to exactly the opposite extreme where people are freaked out now about this IV drip being turned off. So anyway, uh, I, we live in interesting times. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a tech catastrophe. Uh, the uh, ATM machines, as you've pointed out, Ed Bot tweeted this as well, are not being used in, in any way that's risky, probably. Nobody's surfing the net on them or getting email. Um, right, right. And and the other thing, too, is, that, you know, this clock expires at midnight, I guess. It looks like it has about 10 hours to go. So, uh, I don't know, that's not quite... Oh, yeah, like I said, it's midnight you know, on, on the West Coast. So... But remember that we got patches today, um, and it, it's were there XP patches? Yes. Um, hmm. Well, not XP. Uh, and again, this is typical. There was the long-awaited Office 2003 RTF patch. Remember, this was yeah, yeah. a zero-day flaw that was found. We talked about it weeks ago, and I recommended that fix it, which simply unregistered RTF from Office, so that you could, if you received a document in in mail um, and word and, and word tried to open it, it wouldn't 
uh, execute code on your system. So that did get fixed officially. No longer do we need to fix it. And all versions of Internet Explorer, 6 through 11, um, also got, those were the two critical vulnerabilities which were fixed. And then there were two other that were important. So it was one of our low patch months, um, just, you know, as we, <laughs> as we give up on Office 2003. And I've already talked about if... You, you need to use Office 2003. You can for like editing your own book transcript. Your own, you know, book manuscript is not going to attack you. And if you need to be opening, if for some reason you can't use a later version of Office and you need to be opening documents that may come from malicious sources or you just click, you can't restrain yourself from clicking on links in email, then you want to use LibreOffice or OpenOffice, not some, you know, which are being maintained currently after Microsoft has set Office 2003 adrift. So, but my, my point was we got all of our patches this month. So it's not actually until next month, May, when the second Tuesday of May occurs and we don't get XP patched. All the other OSs get patched and the people paying for the patches get their XPs patched, but the rest of us who are using XP still don't. That's actually a month from now is the first actual event where something happens. Unless, and I could be completely wrong, some incredible zero-day exploit hits tomorrow and because the bad guys know that Microsoft won't address it. And I really do wonder, frankly, if something really bad happened to XP, one third of the operating systems still on the net, if they wouldn't step up and fix it anyway. So anyway, as I said, really, really interesting times. Perfect for uh, us and the podcast. And by the way, I've also seen amid the coverage Lots of misreporting where people say that you that but the XP patches will no longer be available. And as if saying as if saying the past ones won't be available, which is completely wrong. You can install Windows 2000 today and get the latest service pack and all of the updates that occurred afterwards. Those are all still there. So anyone, and you'll be able to, if you had an XP retail box, you'll still be able to register it and bring it current after today. So it's the the flow of, of updates that stops, but Microsoft's massive database of all prior fixes, that continues to be available for maybe forever. I don't know that they've ever, I guess you probably can't get them for NT 3.51, but I'm not even sure about that. I think they always have that available. So, um, the best $6 I ever spent in my life, I spent yesterday seeing the documentary Particle Fever, which is about an hour and a half long about the Large Hadron Collider experiment. Ooh, I want to see and that. Leo, it is still in theaters. In my local theaters, have it for like the rest of this week. So um, it, it got on IMDb an 8.1 out of 10 from 211 users. The critics' meta score 
is 87 over 100. The New York Times gave it 100. The Hollywood Reporter gave it 100. The Village Voice and Time Out New York both gave it 100, as did the Globe and Mail. And I'll share just three one-line summaries of, of uh, NPR said, it's jaw-droppingly cool stuff explained with admirable clarity by an affable physicist tour guide, David Kaplan, and wedded to the table to the tale of a massive technological undertaking like nothing in history. And and they they quote one scientist saying the biggest machine ever built by human beings. And, and NPR finished saying that and it's flat out thrilling. The Hollywood reporter said particle fever succeeds on every level, but none more important than in making the normally intimidating and arcane world of genius-level physics, at least conceptually comprehensible and even friendly to the lay viewer. And lastly, Globe and Mail said, their excitement is infectious and the entire endeavor is both mind-bending and tremendously human. Near the end, Peter Higgs, the recent Nobel Prize winner, of course, the Higgs boson is named after him, and this is what they were searching for, and one of the scientists who first predicted the particle back in 1964 is seen in Switzerland watching the data results come in while a tear trickles oh, down. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. And, and Leo, I mean, I had tears in my eyes. Yeah. This, this documentary, this was inside the project. When you look at the list of so-called actors, it's all the physicists, and it says played by himself, played by herself, played by himself, played by herself. I mean, what the the entire piece is the I mean like Princeton physicists, Stanford physicists, Italians, Germans, um Israelis, um Iraqis. The, the point was made that this knows no national boundaries. Scientists from countries at war with each other are all there. And and the so somebody was rolling a a a, a, uh, a camera all through this, interviewing the physicists. What you know about what this means? What it you know? I mean, so so basically, for an hour and a half, we follow through the dream and the construction and those first stumbles that some of us will remember where there was a, a leak and a catastrophe. And, and then, like, they're arguing about whether to tell the truth to the media about when they are going to turn it on or not because they're so worried they're going to they're gonna stumble and to have the world's cameras, you know, st- watching them stumble. And so it's like, it's like the, 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 it's pure science. And then there's the other distinction made between the, the theorists and the experimentalists. And that's... That line is drawn clearly, and you hear them each talking about each other. It's just, I, I cannot overstate how incredible it is. It, there is a site, particlefever.com, where, uh, thanks to Simon Zarafa, who, who shot that to me this morning, um, where you can go and see the couple minutes long trailer for it, um, if you can still find it, there is a list there of the theaters that have it, and it's in the major cities around. If it's near you, I, oh, my God, you know, it's worth it not to wait till the summer. It will be out in HD and on disc this summer. 
Um, you you want you want to run this, Leo? Uh, should I should I run the uh, the audio for it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Who have no rules and they are going into the frontier. Do they talk about next I've year's never heard of a experiment in history where an entire field because that's interesting a single too. event the large hadron collider the biggest machine ever built is finally going to turn on you take two things and you smash them together you get a lot of stuff out of that collision and you try to understand wow, that's that a nice shot could be nothing other than just understanding everything Little did I know when I started that the experiments would take 30 years, and here I am still not knowing. I really want to know the truth. That's Higgs. The first time I ever saw it, I can remember walking in and just being stunned. Like, five stories completely filled with custom-designed, hand-soldered microelectronics. There are 10,000 people, over 100 nationalities. Ciao, ciao. 100,000 computers deal with the data. In fact, the World Wide Web was invented at CERN so that physicists could share the data. This is really my generation's only shot. <laughs> Let's get started, everybody. Now comes the day of reckoning. Wow. Given the complexity, they're already about a week or two behind. We're saying that all their tools are breaking. It begs the question, what are the risks? It would be a catastrophe for physics. This helium leak, uh, really frustrating. You've got magnets sheared off their jacks. Completely catastrophic. We're at a fork in the road, and it's cranking up the suspense as much as it possibly can. We may discover additional space dimension, the mystery and the origin of the universe. We may be at the end of the road. The entire control room is like a group of six-year-olds whose birthday is next week. It's incredible that it's happened in my lifetime. I can't wait to see this. Whatever we learn is going to have a dramatic impact on the way human beings think about the universe forever. Article fever. Wow. Yeah. And but it's so, not over for the uh, LHC. They, they they've got much more to do and then we were talking with Michio Kaku about next the next experiment which yep. may be just as significant. It's really remarkable. Yep. It's really exciting. Yep. So we'll we'll definitely have this available this summer, but if it's in a theater near you, I mean, I I was I'm not sure yet that I won't be going there. Because I think I have to see this thing. I think I have to stand in yeah, it you know? and look ar- look around. We should do I a mean, field trip. I was going to say that. <laughs> Let's do a planned ahead trip. Planned ahead, we would announce to everybody when we're going to be there, and anyone who wants to, you know, join us uh, would be welcome to. Because I can't imagine a, a better place to have a little informal get together. It's actually showing uh, just down the road a piece. Oh, Leo. Yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding. See it. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And and it may disappear on Friday. It's yeah, disappearing. Well, from- it, it comes Friday, so we're probably getting your old print. And it, ah. it leaves Sunday, so it's a three day engagement in uh, San Rafael. So yeah, but this is all on the website particlefever.com, so you can see where it is. And of course, we'll be able to uh, we'll be able to see it someday. Yeah, it, uh, this summer. Home, uh, the, home the, the, the site says that it'll be available. So. Yeah. No one will have, and I will certainly let everyone know when that happens. Yeah. But wow, oh, it's just oh, it was. I mean, it, <laughs> it's what was really interesting is that as as somebody who's been involved in creating stuff, and for example, I no longer tell, I, I no longer try to guess when something's finished. Someone says, "When's this going to be done?" I have no idea. So. I could relate so well to the dilemma that the scientists were in with $8 billion spent 
and this incredible worldwide energy, and then the press all, you know, not understanding at all that this is not like plugging in your coffee pot and it, it brews. I mean, no one has ever built one of these before. You know, what's going to happen when we turn it on? And it just, and so it was, they made the greatest, they did a perfect job of, of like illustrating that tension that exists between real experimental theoretical physics out on the far edge and, you know, the, 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 the lack of understanding that anyone who, who isn't in that mode of going where we've never gone before, you don't know what is ahead, which is, I argue is what makes us, the journey so fun. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, but it, it annoys the media because they don't know how to, you know, reduce it to a soundbite. Right. Can't, can't wait. It, yeah. So, yeah, uh, particle fever. If, if you can see it, see it. Uh, and I already mentioned, we, we, we talked about Rogue Code, Mark Rosinovich's book. I got it last week. I'm about 16 or 17% in. Um, and it's, it's exactly what we got before. New topic, new stuff, real interesting. And boy, I don't know how he's done it, but he's got some stuff in here about high-frequency trading that is like in the news yesterday. And it's like, wait a minute, uh, what? So it, it's also very timely. So this is his third novel, uh, following Trojan Horse and Zero Day. And as I said, it's it's oh, and Jeff Aiken, uh, the, the character who he's developed in the two prior books, is with us again and is sort of the the focal point of the novel. So I still don't know what happens, um, but uh, I'm definitely enjoying the read. So uh, he did say that it was. Late May, so late next month was when it was going to be released. That must mean hard copy because Amazon has that for pre-order, but you can get the Kindle version now. And, of course, the Audible version uh, is no doubt uh, going to happen before long. Okay, now this I feel a little bit weird about, but I just um, I, ha- I just want to give an, an acknowledgement to a very useful utility. I think I've mentioned these guys before. There's a product called NEDVD produced by a company called Slysoft. Oh, yeah. We talk about them a lot. Yeah. And, and they have a Wikipedia entry. NEDVD under Wikipedia says NEDVD is a Microsoft Windows driver allowing decryption of DVDs on the fly as well as targeted removal of copy preventions and user operation prohibitions, UOPs. That's where, like, you know, you can't fast forward through the endless commercials that you are now forced to watch on a disc that you buy, for example. Uh, you know, you can tell from my voice how I feel about that. Um, with an upgrade, says Wikipedia, it will also do the same for HD DVD. Those were the red ones that were, of course, the ones I adopted before the world. I went should to rip blue. mine. If I had a player, I would. I don't have any way to play it. Yep. Yeah. And Blu ray discs. I have a ton the of NED, those HD DVDs. The NE DVD program runs in the background, making discs unrestricted and region free. In addition to removing digital restrictions, any DVD will also defeat Macrovision analog copy prevention. Any DVD will not work on VHS tapes, they note, only discs. 
Analog prevention distorts the video signal to prevent high-quality copying of the output. Any DVD is also available to remove copy prevention from audio CDs. This came to my attention. I mean, first of all, I've known about any DVD for some time. Everyone knows I buy discs. I, what really annoys me is I'm supporting the industry, which is, which is using some laws of questionable value to attack other companies, which is, is annoying. But, you know, I, I buy discs. But we've also, you know, I, w- I was comfortable with the idea that when you purchased the content, you had the right to use it as you saw fit, not to give it to people, not to copy it so that it would be hurting the revenue of the people selling it. But if I want a disc to be viewed on my iPad, you know, the argument is uh, that's within fair, fair use. And so anyway, these guys, uh, of course, the, the movie industry has been after them forever. And they were sued in, I think it's Antigua. Um, and they are, they're appealing the decision. There was a $30,000 judgment against them, which is probably pocket change for these guys. Anyway, I just sort of wanted to say, you know, using this kind of tool in a way that doesn't reduce the revenue of the copyright holders, I think this is valuable because I'm annoyed when I can't use the the chapter jump button in order to skip over the, you know, an amazing amount of previews that I don't care about on a disc which I have purchased. So, uh, again, I just wanted to for those who don't know, now everybody does, and I've said my piece. Um, this next picture, Leo, if you want to put this on the screen, um, I took some heat over in the GRC news group over uh, my calling Windows XP a robust operating system because some people who'd been around for years rem- remembered when I was calling XP a toy. And it it was the it was when we moved from... It was when we moved from um, Windows 2000 to XP that I just looked at it. I mean, I think I used worm, words like romper room and so forth. Anyway, I, I yeah, had I think occasion- we called it the Fisher-Price interface on Tech oh, TV. Oh, God. Because it had anyway, big, so what this- glowing buttons, you know. Yes, yes. Well, and, and here we have this. Re- I mean, we all survived Clippy, the jumping, dancing oh. paperclip. Ugh. From from Microsoft, the search office. dog was so much worse. And here, yes. So here is this this canine that jumps up, and I mean, in the menu of options is have ask him to do a trick. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. okay. So I rest my case. You know, you know. <laughs> oh my lord! It was a what toy ha- operating system. What happened was I fired up a a a a, um, a VMware virtual machine running an old, I mean, a, a, a virgin version of XP because I was curious to see whether wh- when the the GDI plus interface was or api was added to xp was it from the beginning or did you have to have dot net something installed because i couldn't get a a straight answer and so i i went i went to search for that dll gdi plus dot dll and up comes this dog and i looked at it i thought okay (laughs) I, i had so forgotten about this and you know and how an untamed windows xp looked 
you know, 13 years ago. So, yes. Uh, so anyway, my, my point was I, I was able to provide this to the guys in the news group and say, okay, tell me this is not a toy. You know, yes, you can turn it off. Yes, this operating system has had 13 years to mature. Yes, its firewall is on now by default. You know, so it, it's as it, it's as good and safe as it could be for what it is. Uh, uh, but boy, yeah, when the when the dog was jumping around and doing tricks, it's like oh, okay. <laughs> Well, and of course, you could go to the classic interface, and you could turn off the dog, even though it was kind of depressing because he'd hang his head and kind of mope off into the distance. Oh, and then wanders off into the distance, yeah. sort of, you know, yeah. like oh, like, well, made you I feel made bad it. for turning him off. Really, <laughs> really. I know. Um, I also have been meaning for weeks to note to people who, who, I guess maybe thought I didn't know when I was talking about that the New York Times revelation about the NSA's breaching um, Huawei's network and products, they said that they, they, I got a lot of tweets and email from people saying, Steve, you know, Ed Snowden is no longer in charge of disseminating this. He's not disseminated anything since he left for Russia. And so, yes, I, I understand that. My My argument was meant to be not that specifically and by the way the new york times even said that this these were documents not from snowden but through from other sources although in the same story they sort of oddly referred to him and the nsa so it was a little muddy um but anyway i just i, I had been meaning to acknowledge that i understood that and my annoyance was that when we most recently saw snowden his newest argument supporting his decision was fourth amendment and that that this didn't fall under that and that and that arguably you know if these documents did somehow come from him he did have some responsibility to look through them and decide what he was giving to to other parties so i didn't want to bring it all up again but i just did want to acknowledge it because um i hadn't before also our great listeners found for me a link between the Windows platform and iOS and the iCloud. There's something called Push Bullet that uh, Adon Huli, H-O-U-L-E, uh, tweeted me, as did several other people. So, but Don was first, uh, which is a, a allows you to send stuff back and forth between your Windows device. I mean, even like there, there's a plugin for Chrome on Windows that allows you to instantly shoot things from Chrome on Windows over into your, your iCloud-connected devices. So I wanted to notify anybody else who has the same problem, something called pushbullet. And you just go pushbullet.com uh, and you can find it. And it seems to be, the guys seem to be related to Google somehow. And Leo, I wanted to mention that another Kickstarter success has occurred. Um, I mentioned to you before, but uh, here it is. It's arrived. This is the the cold, the the slow drip cold brewing project, uh, which I mentioned before, uh, and it came a couple of days ago. I haven't yet even taken the lid off. It's all still in there. I you uh, know, I, didn't we try all this before? Coffee without a bite. You don't like it, Steve. I didn't try it. You yeah, tried it. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, said I, I like a bite in my coffee. Yeah. So we'll we'll see. Well, I know this, why. Because sends... you tried the um, 
the black blood of the earth or the dark blood of the earth, which is a You're cold. You're right, I did. It's a cold brew, and that's why it's low acidity. We'll see. Maybe, yeah. maybe you'll so, like this. It's pretty. Yeah. I just haven't, you know, I just want to set it up and watch it drip. And, you know, I probably stay with my, with the, the solution I have, which is, you know, gen- generates a pot that I then drink over the course of a couple hours. And, and uh, everyone who tries mine loves it. So, um, squirrel. We have two additional languages that are now supported at request from our listeners, Lithuanian and Latvian. And we are now at 54 languages uh, ready to be translated as soon as I get the user interface uh, text all finalized. And we're up to 362 participants. So uh, we will have it'll be great once we're able to turn everybody loose. Um, I, as I mentioned last week when I talked about the UI engine that I had written to be multilingual and also to to size itself with a with a real focus on optimizing per language the 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 metrics uh, aspect ratio and so forth of the user interface um, that's done. So the first thing I'm working on now is the harvesting of entropy from the user's system. So uh, on a Windows platform, so that we're able to securely generate identities that are richly 256 bits of entropy for the ID and also for other parts of the crypto system that need it. So I'm working on that now. I had planned to talk about that today. Uh, instead, we'll talk about it in two weeks. And I'll, uh, you'll see that the, the tense of what I'm speaking changes because instead of I'm going to, it will be I did, uh, but and I'll also have results to share, which will be cool. Like the rate at which entropy is available from different sources, uh, I should know two weeks from now after next week's Q&A. Uh, we will we'll talk about it. Um, and very quickly for Spinrod, I wanted to share this one picture, which was tweeted to me. And as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, this shows, this was from Sean McCormack, uh, who sent me a tweet with this photo, just saying, thank you at SGGRC showing, uh, Spinrod, not quite halfway through his drive, um, and I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It looks like 11 or 12 green R's on the map, which is half done. And green R, of course, means that Spinrite found a problem in the sector um, of his hard drive and was able to, through whatever manipulations were required, maybe invoking Dynastat data recovery or not, was able to perfectly recover 100% of the data in that sector. Um, and I don't know how the rest of the drive looked, but uh, this is the kind of thing where you run it a second time and then it's perfect. And the reason is that the the problem sectors are rewritten perfectly so that when the drive comes back along, there's nothing wrong. Um, so uh, this is the kind of you, you, you want to run your drive on Spinrite at this stage when you're still getting green R's rather than the like waiting until it's too late where you get red U's because then while Spinrite is still able to perform a partial recovery and that makes it entirely unique in the industry, um, you may be missing some bits that are important or 
as as we found, it might be you know a chunk of a directory tree, and you could still get to the rest of your drive, which you were cut off from before, even if there are uh, some bits that were not recoverable. So even partial recovery is better than none, because after all, there are what four thousand ninety six bits in a sector. Um, but if typically, if you can't read eleven or twelve, everything else gives up on all four thousand ninety six of them, which I never really understood. So. Um, anyway, another uh, success from Spinrite. Nice job. Okay. So, um, how the heart bleeds. Two years ago, a RFC, um, and I have it in my notes somewhere, uh, 6250 something, just from memory. I don't remember the our exact number. That RFC was finalized, I think it was in February of 2012, so just over two years ago, which added a new feature, which in the parlance of, of um, SSL and TLS, we call extensions. So this is a protocol extension to TLS, the, uh, the transport layer security to create a heartbeat. And I suspect that this was actually done not so much for TLS, but for DTLS. Remember that, um, and I don't think we've explicitly talked about DTLS. That's the UDP version of TLS, which is to say, normally the way and, and remember, when, every time I'm going, to use, I'm going to say TLS because this is all about TLS, but this is OpenSSL, this is HTTPS, and so forth. I imagine our listeners all understand this. Um, OpenSSL went from version 1 to version 3.0, and then it was sort of phased over. The name essentially was changed to TLS 1.0, which is... It's effectively the same as SSL 3.0, but at that point, SSL stopped being the term, and TLS is now the term as we move forward, and we are now at TLS 1.2. So, one of the so so, so normally the way we establish a, a a TLS connection is we first establish an underlying TCP connection. Um, between two endpoints. Normally, the client connects to the server, and and then the the then on top of that connection. So we call that the the transport layer. Then the application layer is is data running on top of the data carrying connection. So TLS runs runs on a TCP connection, sort of bound to it. Well, it's also possible to, oh, and and then above that is sort of like the the real application layer, HTTP, which in the SSL version, the secure version, is HTTPS. And you can have, we've talked about secure email or FTP, uh, secure and, and, and so forth, different application layers running on the underlying protocol that underneath it has TCP. Well, the the architects of these protocols decided there would be value in allowing 
UDP, that is not TCP, but UDP to be the underlying um, transport protocol and then to support TLS on UDP. So, So what's different about that is there isn't the initial TCP handshake. And with TCP, there is the notion of a keep alive. Um, when, when users at home behind a NAT router are connecting to a server on the Internet, their outgoing TCP SYN packet, that is TCP SYN packet, it creates a mapping through the NAT router so that the returning packet knows where to go inside the private network. It, it, so it actually creates, a, you can think of it sort of like as a temporary routing rule or a firewall rule that, 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 that routes that returning packet to the proper server. That rule stays alive normally until the TCP connection is torn down. And that's done by either sending an, a FIN, an FIN, a, a finish packet, or a RST, a reset packet. Both of those are types of TCP packets, both either sort of gracefully or immediately terminating the TCP connection. And that's what tells the router that it can now remove the entry from its table. Well, UDP doesn't have that's anything like that kind of protocol. It's normally used, as we've talked about, for like DNS. You send a DNS query off and a DNS response come back. So the router creates a mapping that is relatively short-lived to allow the answering, D- the answering UDP packet to get back to its sender. The problem is nowhere in UDP is there... A, like we're done with this. That just doesn't exist. Where it explicitly exists with TCP, it doesn't with UDP. So, and and I just gave the example of you know a consumer router, but increasingly through the internet, is is all kinds of state being maintained. You might have enterprise firewalls, which are stateful firewalls allowing their the, the, the users inside the uh, enterprise's intranet to have access to the, to, the, to the internet outside and monitoring that traffic as it comes back. So, you know, so, and, and you can have proxy servers and, you know, all kinds of, of stuff now sprinkled around the internet that is paying attention to state, not just passively moving packets back and forth. So it's probably the case that the guys who were doing the the TLS over UDP said, you know, we need the equivalent of a keep alive. What I what I didn't mention on TCP is there is this concept of what's called a keep alive, which is like a heartbeat. The idea is that either end is able to send the other an ACK packet, which is just slightly incorrect. It's it's like if it's acknowledging a 
it's acknowledging the past of their connection. And that induces the other, the TCP stack on the other end to say, no, this is where we are in our agreed upon sequence numbering of bytes moving between endpoints. So, so it's, it's sort of a way to just, there, there's a way to poke the other side and say, let me hear from you. And so TCP keep alives are used on otherwise static connections. You don't need data to be actively moving through a TCP connection in order for it to be, to be kept up. Now, there are, because you can have like computers could just go off the internet and leave state in place. That is, they may not send the fin or the reset packet. They may never get around to it. So you still have timeouts on even TCP state in, in NAT routers and other places where, you know, if, if some length of time goes by with no data passing, the router says, well, even though we never got the official word that this connection is no longer valid, apparently it's not because not, it's, you know, nothing is happening. So they'll tear it down. So the keep alive is, a, is an affirmative way on TCP of just having a very tiny, because an ACK packet is very short, a very tiny, um, is this where we are? And the other side says, well, no, we're here. And they say, okay, fine. And that keeps everybody happy. So since UDP has no notion of that, um, this notion of a heartbeat was added not to UDP, but to TLS, which is sort of this level above the, the lower level transport. And that's, it was added as an extension so that the, the endpoints advertise what extensions they support and it would then be possible to achieve the same thing with a TLS connection over UDP as we have with the so-called keep alives on TCP. And that is a heartbeat. And that's where the name came from. The idea being, even though no data, no TLS data is being exchanged, we want to continue to assert that at each end, we've got a TLS stack and we're both paying attention. And so this heartbeat, which was, which was introduced with an RFC two years ago, is the way we do it. So one month later, after the RFC was finalized in March of 2012, OpenSSL went to from version 1.0.0 to 1.0.1 and added this extension. And unfortunately, there was a problem with it two years ago. In their security advisory dated the 7th of April, that's yesterday, um, OpenSSL said TLS heartbeat read overrun and then they they gave the the uh, common uh, vulnerability extension, you know, the the standard Z, CVE number. They said a missing bounds check in the handling of the TLS heartbeat extension can be used to reveal 
up to 64K of memory to a connected client or server. Only 1.0.1 and 1.0.2 beta releases of OpenSSL are affected, including 1.0.1F, which is the last one before G, which happened yesterday, and 1.0.2 beta 1. We were They were getting ready to do a 1.0.2 release, which is in beta. It naturally had all of the current code from 1.0.1, which until yesterday all had this problem. And then they give thanks uh, to uh, Neil uh, Mehta of Google Security for uncovering this bug and our friend Adam Langley uh, 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 and uh, some guy, Bodo uh, um, Mueller at uh, ACM.org for for preparing the fix. Um, They say affected users should upgrade to OpenSSL 1.0.1G. Users unable to immediately upgrade can alternatively recompile OpenSSL with the hyphen D OpenSSL no heartbeats option. So that's a compile time option that's always been available for the last two years. And they say 1.0.2 will be fixed in the 1.0.2 second beta. So what does this mean? This means that as early as a full two years ago, any websites that were keeping up with the latest and greatest and therefore incorporated the then 1.0.1 version of OpenSSL have from then or from whenever they did until yesterday and hopefully not today or tomorrow because this news was flashed like wildfire for for up to this two years and hopefully ending or ended now there has been a vulnerability present which the the internet community at large has been completely unaware of which allows an attacker to exfiltrate up to 24K of memory that was meant to be private. Memory in the server, and it is by bidirectional exploit. So if the client had this, then you something you connected to could come and get memory from you as well. Um, but that's not where we're focused. We're, we're focused on the server because the guys who found the problem attacked themselves they attacked their own servers and saw what this 64k block contained it's going to vary from from attempt to attempt there's no control over it you like a buffer overflow you you get what you get you get what's there but Unfortunately, 64K is a lot of memory, and they found their server certificate in that 64K and other critical 
crucial private information, passwords, and, and so forth. And in fact, Dan Gooden of Ars Technica has some nice coverage, which I'll share in a second. But uh, the, the Tor project that is, of course, concerned about this, their, their systems are largely based on, on open SSL uh, protocol as a, a wrapper for what they do. Uh, they immediately blogged about this last night. And they said, a new open SSL vulnerability on 101 through 101F is out today, which can be used to reveal memory to a connected client or server. If you're using an older open SSL version, you're safe. Meaning if you're, if you never went to 1.0.1, you know, even recently, uh, 0.9.8 had been like a still maintained in parallel with the, you know, so, so, so the, the version 0.9.8 track was, was, was being kept up in parallel with the, with the version 1.0.1 and so forth track. So many people may have stayed safe. And in fact, we have some numbers about that that I'll share because it's not as bad as the 66% of the internet that the early reports have have said it turns out that many fewer servers for whatever reason probably because they weren't using the latest version did have this extension exposed and and therefore vulnerable tor the tor blog continues note that this bug affects way more programs than just tor expect everybody who runs an https web server to be scrambling today for example, I will talk about LastPass because they did scramble already and have a great blog about, about, about the consequences to them. If you need strong anonymity, says Tor, or privacy on the Internet, you might want to stay away from the Internet entirely for the next few days while things settle. Wow. And sadly, yes, sadly, that's good advice. And I'll explain why. Because note that this, and, and we'll come back to it, but this is not like... The typical website loses 100,000 usernames and passwords where suddenly, without you doing anything, you're now vulnerable. Remember that th- th- this, is, this is a server or server's credentials may have been taken, which means, first of all, if they weren't using perfect forward secrecy and they and someone had archives of their traffic then that past traffic could be decrypted we've covered that in detail in previous podcasts so there's one problem but the the maybe the more relevant problem assuming you don't have archives of the past is that with a server's credentials you could you could impersonate the server you would be you could do a man in the middle attack Or if you could, for example, somehow get the user to go to the wrong IP, like by changing their host's file in their machine or by somehow poisoning their access to DNS. We've seen routers, uh, home routers, whose DNS has been repointed. That would redirect them to a fake DNS server so that their browser would think they were at Amazon.com. But in fact, they're somewhere entirely different, yet 
with a spoofed certificate, with a, with a, with a valid certificate for Amazon.com, their browser wouldn't know any better. So, so the point is that it's, it's connections we make now, connections we make to sites that may have been compromised going forward that we need to worry about. And so that also tells us that proper remediation for this is revocation of any cert- any the, the the revocation of the certificates of any site that may have had its certificate stolen during this two-year window or however long the window was because we need the old certificate to be to be revoked for use in our browsers and that requires that browsers check revocation which most don't by default so we'll talk about that too um and then those sites need to re- have new certificates reissued so one good sign would be to to see whether the certificate on a secure site that you've not yet logged into, not yet given your credentials to, has recently been reissued. For example, if you check lastpass.com, you'll find that their cert says April 7th or 8th because they just got a new one um, in order to address this. So that's one good thing we'd like to see. So I, I, let me go on with, with the, the Taurus perspective because it's, it's real world and really useful, as, as you can see. Um, so they said, stay away from the Internet entirely for the next few days while things settle. Here are our thoughts on what Tor components are affected. And so they said, for example, the clients. The Tor browser should not be affected since it uses LibNSS. Now, that's the Netscape security suite, which is not OpenSSL, so not a problem. And they, so, the, so the, the, the Tor browser isn't an OpenSSL user. But they said, but Tor clients could possibly be induced to send sensitive information like what sites you visited in this session to your entry guards, says Tor. If you're using TBB, we'll have new bundles out shortly. If you're using your operating system's Tor package, you should get a new OpenSSL package and then be sure to manually restart your Tor. Then they said, of their of Tor's relays and bridges. Tor relays and bridges could maybe be made to leak their medium turn term onion keys, which are rotated once a week, or their long term I- relay identity keys. An attacker who has your relay identity key can publish a new relay descriptor indicating that you're at a new location, and this goes on and on. Uh, if anyone's interested, I've got links. Uh, in, the, in fact, today's show notes are is, is a link fiesta, so lots of things uh, for further research of anyone who's interested. Um, so uh, Tor goes on about their hidden services. Tor hidden services might leak their long-term hidden service identity keys to their guard relays, like the last big open SSL bug, this shouldn't allow an attacker to identify the location of the hidden service, but an attacker who knows the hidden service identity can uh, identity key can impersonate the hidden service. So in the case of Tor, the impact for them is 
is complex because of the, you know, the nature of the way they're using the open SSL package. Dan Gooden, uh, writing for Ars Technica today, uh, did some nice reporting. He said, researchers have discovered an extremely critical defect in the cryptographic software library an estimated two-thirds of web servers use to identify themselves to end users and prevent the eavesdropping of passwords, banking credentials, and other sensitive data. And, and so he says default, uh, he says the, the OpenSSL is the default package used by Apache as well as just about everything else that's not Microsoft-based. And that's exactly right. So consider also that OpenSSL is what everyone in the open software world uses. I mean, almost without exception. We talked about GNU TLS a couple of weeks ago, which a few people use because um, it had some recent problems too. But mostly OpenSSL is just the de facto default standard. And so, you know, chat clients, um, instant messaging, um, you know, it, like it, like everything that wants to connect securely that it has its roots in open source and is, you know, establishing this kind of a connection probably has open SSL and probably has something from the last two years in it. So, you know, this has repercussions way beyond just web servers. And in fact, we could argue that those issues may be in the long term more critical because there aren't the, the sort of the single points of contact and focus that at least we have with web servers. Dan continues saying, um, the bug, which has resided in production versions of OpenSSL for more than two years, could make it possible for people to recover the private encryption key at the heart of the digital certificates used to authenticate Internet servers and to encrypt data traveling between them and end users. Attacks leave no traces in server logs, which is absolutely true. So there's no way of knowing if the bug has been actively exploited. So, you know, it's not possible to go back and, you know, check old logs to find this. Many times it's possible to do that, in which case companies are able to rule out a, a, a now known attack having been used previously before it was widely known, not in this case. Dan continues saying, still, the risk is extraordinary given the ability to disclose keys, passwords, and other credentials that could be used in future compromises. The researchers who work at Google and software security firm Codenomicon said even after vulnerable websites install the OpenSSL patch, they may still remain vulnerable to attacks. The risk stems from the possibility that attackers already exploited the vulnerability to recover the private key of the digital certificate. Passwords used to administer the sites or authentication cookies and similar credentials used to validate users to restricted parts of a website. So just breaking from that for a minute. Remember, this is just a 64K gift. This is a 64K, you know, we don't know what we just got, but let's see what it looks like. Let's see what's here. Let's look for text strings. Let's look for recognizable 
X.509 certificate headers and so forth. You know, this a lot of this material now fits very well-established standards, which means it's easy to scan through a block of of seemingly random gibberish and, you know, find literally keys to the kingdom. So Dan says, fully recovering from the two-year-long vulnerability may also require revoking any exposed keys. I would argue that's the case. Reissuing new keys and invalidating all session keys and session cookies. Um, he's And then finishing up, he says, OpenSSL is by far the Internet's most popular open source cryptographic library and TLS implementation. It is the default en- encryption engine for Apache. Um, also, the Nginx server, which, by the way, is spelled N-G-I-N-X, which is otherwise unpronounceable, but it's pronounced N- Engine X. That's what we use. Uh, yeah. Yes. And it's a fabulous server, oh, yeah, by it's the way. the one, yeah. Which, according to Netcraft, runs 66% of websites. Now, this is where the 66 or the two-thirds is coming from. And this, as we'll see in a second, is a bit of a misnomer. Um, OpenSSL also ships in a wide variety of operating systems and applications, including Debian or the Debian Wheezy, uh, Ubuntu, by the way, I've been mispronouncing it Ubuntu, and I got corrected by someone in Twitter, so thank you for that, Ubuntu, uh, the CentOS, Fedora, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, and OpenSUSE distributions of Linux. The uh, missing I'm bounce- sorry, Steve, that's pronounced SUSE. Okay. Please get it right. Thank you. Thank you. The missing bounds check in the handling of the transport layer security heartbeat extension affects OpenSSL, and then Dan explains 101 through 101F, as as I talked about. And then uh, then he says here in his article what I already mentioned. uh, So, you know, can it be exploited? Where the the researchers who discovered it wrote, and I'm quoting now, we attacked ourselves from outside without leaving a trace. Without using any privileged information or credentials, we were able to steal from ourselves the secret keys used for our SSL certificates, usernames and passwords, instant messages, emails, and business-critical documents and communication. So, and then Dan, he wraps up saying, they, they called on white hat hackers to set up honeypots of vulnerable TLS servers designed to entrap attackers in an attempt to see if the bug is being actively exploited in the wild. Um, and as I mentioned before, Heartbeat can be disabled through a recompile, but, you know, if you're going to do that, you might as well just get 1.0.1G uh, and be current. There is a great page that summarizes this. I don't, and this was put out by these guys. I don't know if it's going to be maintained over time, but it's just heartbleed.com. And so there's a lot of good information there. Um, yesterday evening, I immediately fired up a dialogue with uh, uh, Ivan Ristik, the the guy who created SSL Labs, saying, Ivan, I'm sure I don't have to urge you to add detection of this vulnerability to your service. But, uh, boy, it it would certainly be useful. Um, He apparently did an all-nighter and shot me email 
uh, in the morning saying it's up. So the good news is our the SSLlabs.com site that we often recommend uh, and use uh, is online, updated, and there's not a separate test. You just do the random you know, test, test the given server and put the domain name in. Uh, and on at the top of the reports page, uh, and Leo, if you scroll down to the bottom of my notes, I took a screenshot of it uh, actually for GRC. We were never vulnerable because we're using IIS, and I don't believe that extension is supported under Windows. Uh, but there is a, a new bar running across underneath, immediately underneath the big grade that you're given. Um, Yahoo, for example, was vulnerable. Twitter was reported as vulnerable. And so there have been a number of major websites that, you know, not surprisingly, are running Apache uh, or Nginx with OpenSSL, and they were doing what they should have been doing, which was keeping current. Um, and so for as many as two years, uh, if anybody else knew about this, certificates and, you know, 64K of potentially value data uh, could have been exported. Oh, and I, now I'm seeing in my notes, the TLS heartbeat RFC was 6520. And yes, it was February of 2012. There's a, a site, philippo.io, that claims to have a heartbeat uh, test as well. And unfortunately, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, okay. It false positives and false negatives. For example, put grc.com in right now. An hour ago, it said I was vulnerable. Well, we've never been vulnerable. Never, ever, because uh, it's IIS. Never, yeah. never, ever, exactly. Yeah, see, um, yeah, broken and so, pipe. I don't know what that and means. So, yeah. so, unfortunately, so he's saying broken pipe. He's not saying what that means. Right. People are interpreting it in, incorrectly. You know. Now, to his credit, and I was, I was going to mention him, and, and we can right now, uh, he was up first. He did it fast. Uh, unfortunately, his site just can't handle the traffic. You can imagine the frenzy of everyone trying to go there. Right. What what he has, though, if you click on the GitHub uh, link you in the upper right yeah. corner, yeah. Well, well, he's got a command line version. So uh-huh. I've, I've already had requests from people saying, how can we test our intranet we, you know, an external service doesn't help. So this this would allow you to use his tool on internal intranet servers to check for this problem, or also to you know check, to do your own tests on internet servers yeah. from you know your own command window. So it's, it's useful. In Go, which is a Google language. Um, yeah, so, and there yeah. was some. There's also some Python involved, and I guess he was saying that his Python. There was a Python script which he believed at one point wasn't able to was was collapsing under the the yeah. load. So, uh, you know, it it may be good. It may take him a while to get it solidified. I imagine other people will put things online immediately too. You know, I, I'm I don't need to. I couldn't anyway because I'm com- way overcommitted as we know. Right. But I'm I'm super happy that Ivan has got SSL Labs doing it because I trust him to do it right. His his initial concern when we began talking was he didn't want to trip intrusion detection systems that might have been looking for misbehavior. He's very sensitive to, you know, his test being in industrial grade. Um, and so when it comes from him, I absolutely trust that he did it the right way. Um, now, what's the actual percentage the best thing the best information i've seen is from netcraft that 
have been profiling over, you know, continually for many years, the Internet's servers. Uh, There's a link in my show notes, but I also have huge pie chart in the show notes. And of the SSL supporting sites, 82.5% do not offer the extension. They aren't and never were vulnerable. So even though even though two-thirds are potentially vulnerable because um, they are they are Apache and Nginx servers, what we know from Netcraft is by their estimate, only seventeen and a half percent are actual are of of SSL connection accepting servers are vulnerable. And I urge anybody who's interested to to get the show notes, scroll down to this big pie chart, click the Netcraft link, or maybe you can find it from the homepage of Netcraft. I, it's certainly it's recent, so it ought to be at the top of their stack of of information. Also in the show notes, I've got a uh, two different links to uh, to source code diff displays. For anybody who wants to like look at it in very much like the you know the go to fail problem, uh, exactly what it was that went wrong and how, and you know the the one zero one F code right next to the one zero one G code which has it fixed yesterday. Um, there's also a very nice uh, blog um, analyzing the bug. Uh, uh, our friend E Strategy Pro, who who is a is a Twitter follower, sent me this, and so thank you for that. Uh, that's at existentialize.com, the blog.existentialize.com. I have a link in the show notes where he basically takes us through the program, this phase of the program logic. You know, loading a pointer and then dereferencing the specific information from the packet and so forth. So anyone who's wants to get more geeky into this, um, uh, there's information there. Um, the last pass guys it responded immediately with a, you know, by fixing the problem last night, they updated OpenSSL, they restarted their servers to load it, they revoked their old certificate uh, issue, you know, got themselves a new one immediately, and then put up a blog posting explaining that, you know, Fortunately, due to the fact that they are TNO, trust no one, all they're doing is storing blobs for people in order to give us iCloud connectivity. You know, we keep the keys, and this, of course, is the reason why I've I selected and personally use and trust LastPass, is even in the face of this kind of, you know, significant potential dilemma, uh, we were safe. As a, as a consequence of the architecture, which didn't require that we have, uh, that we trust SSL connections. So uh, that, that's really good. Even if someone were to spoof, they would just get a blob of data that they can't do anything more with than the LastPass guys can. Um, go ahead, because I know what this uh, is, what you're going to talk about next. So go ahead. Um, yeah, so, um, so that's... Uh, um uh so what you know where are we left we so 
the the internet servers have a dilemma. What I what I think we really need is every site which depends upon SSL TLS security needs to tell its users, its customers, what this means to them. Um, I mean, even non-techie sites, you know, Bank of America, uh, Twitter does have a blog post up contradicting what I saw earlier, saying that this was never a problem for them. It may have been that Netcraft noted that they, well, if Netcraft noted well, maybe they're using IIS. So Netcraft saw that they were using the um, the TLS extension, but in their case, they weren't vulnerable to it. I, I don't I, I don't know. But what we really need now, because as users of sites, you know, our trust through no fault of theirs is is you know called into question, and so we really need statements from those sites saying this is. This is what we know, you know, I mean, what little we're able to know, but it's more than, you know, we as users know. We, we need, you know, some sort of response from, from you know, individual Internet hosts. But what do we do? And, I mean, uh, if Twitter says, yeah, well, should we do, change your password? Is that what you need to do? What do you do? Well, okay, so, so if, so the, the, the biggest problem is with the fact that there wasn't, private notice remember that for example when when kaminsky when dan found the problem with dns servers he was able to work in secret with the dns server community to fix the problem with non-random uh uh i can't remember what it was there was a a non-random something in the query 16 bits i mean i i have my whole spoofability page that's all about that um but so he was able to fix the problem and get everything deployed and largely remediated before he went public with it here the problem is everybody found out about this at once so and i mean the the nature of the of the, of the problem the fact that github has source code you know, checking for it and demonstrating for demonstrating it means that bad guys are almost certainly in a mad scramble to to build a tool and immediately start sucking down 64k blobs of data, even to look at later. Um, but you know, to get it now before websites update themselves to to a non-vulnerable version of OpenSSL. So, so the biggest problem is this, like, who's going to get there first? Are, are sites going to get themselves fixed before the bad guys are able to reach in and get their credentials? Um, what, so we as users, the, with the exception of the problem with por- perfect forward secrecy, which is which w- was probably only useful to the NSA because if the NSA was able to get certificates from websites, then they could suddenly decrypt all of the traffic, the encrypted traffic that they presumably been archiving over all these years, um, and that we're assuming they don't already know about this. Who knows? Um, but, but with the exception of that, it is only for us connections that we make 
from this point until the website has secured itself that are at risk. And only to the degree that that we could be misled to a fraudulent site, either through a man-in-the-middle attack impersonating the site or a DNS redirect of some sort that that has us going to the wrong IP but our browser doesn't know. Um, the other thing we need to do is is to turn revocation on. Um, the last link that I have on the show notes is to a blog posting, and Leo's got it on the screen now, where it says uh, in Chrome, you have to go into settings and under HTTPS slash SSL, uh, there's a manage certificates button right below that. It says check for server certificate revocation. That is normally off. And I haven't had a chance to check Firefox, but I, I immediately will. We should all turn that on because even as, as certificates that have escaped from the control of their, of their owners well before expiration. Remember that all certificates ultimately expire. So stolen certificates will expire. And this is another reason why I'm no longer complaining about certificate expiration, even though it's expensive for me. Um, I, it's clear that having a two-year or three-year horizon on the inherent life of this cryptographic credential is important. Because that means that that revocation only needs to, to, to override what would otherwise be the certificate's acceptance until the certificate would have already otherwise expired, in which case the expiration will prevent the browser from, from accepting it. So expiration works. Revocation can... It, it, the reason it's turned off by default is that it can slow things down a bit. You, you may need to... to to be your, your your browser, and we we did a whole podcast on revocation. So anybody who wants the details can go back and find it. But there there's there's a, either uh, you go to the certificate authority and get its information, or there's OCSP, which is the online uh, cert, uh, certificate resolution uh, re- revocation handling protocol that allows a browser to to dynamically query for that. And, we, and we've talked about, though, the problems, for example, is some browsers, when they don't get an affirmative reply, they assume it's okay because they didn't hear it wasn't, even though it might not be. So really for the first time, I'm not sure. I, well, you know, we, We've seen individual small instances of certificates which have had to be revoked. Here we're in a situation where potentially every website that might have been in danger, I mean, like LastPass, we know, already did the right thing. All the other websites, 17.5%, apparently, that had this extension enabled, if they're going to be responsible, they will revoke the certificate they've been using and issue a new one. Well, that's only useful to us if we are smart enough not to trust the revoked certificate. That's the one that we're now vulnerable to. So the real takeaway from the podcast is we need to make sure revocation is working. And it's, it's funny, I was just thinking, okay, where can we, uh, um, if anyone knows of a site that tests for revocation, I was wishing that I had one, but I don't. 
That would be very useful because it'd be neat to be able to go to a site where there is a revoked certificate and be able to verify with our browser that, okay, good, the revocation is working here because if certificates got stolen until they naturally expire, um, we're in danger if we're not checking for revocation. And we're not normally. Unfortunately, mobile browsers apparently don't check for revocation. And I don't see any way to turn that on. So, and since most browsing now is more than half is mobile, yeah. it's going to be a pretty widespread vulnerability here. Yeah. And and moving forward, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the danger is that we would be we would be using a site that has not fixed itself and um and our credentials could be vulnerable if that if the certificate had been exfiltrated but mostly i think what we need to do now is get ourselves tuned up uh for a major revocation fest mm. yeah apparently yeah. the mac keychain and the desktop there's something called online Certificate Status Protocol. That's the OCSP, and yes. And that Safari pays attention to. Good. So that would be sufficient, right? Yes. Because all, all the revoked certificates would be in that database. Yes, I expect that we're going to see a flurry of a revocation from responsible sites. Yeah. Uh, and we just need to make sure that our browsers pay attention to them. And 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 I love the idea of honeypots being established because, again... Because this thing leaves no trace, nobody knows currently if you know the degree, if any, certificates have or were stolen during this two-year right. window. So, boy, so this is the it, setting. If you go to the uh, Mac keychain for OCSP, it's it's current. The default is best attempt. Ah, uh, uh, yes, and so 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 that means. That, that's what I was referring to. It tries, and if it doesn't get an answer, then it says, oh, okay, Never we'll mind. just go with it. Yes. So uh, we should say... Require. require. Well, there's only require if certificate oh, indicates. We can't select require for all certificates. So I don't know. Uh, well, I will clearly be doing some more research yeah. on this. Uh, this is I'll not in Safari. In this is in the Macintosh keychain. Uh, access program. I wonder if then if there, the option is there. I wonder why it's grayed out. Yeah, because what you would like is require for all certificates, right? That it check with the uh, yeah. OCSP. You know, um, require certificate indicates is probably okay because the certificate itself and probably all see. You know, re remember there are different types of certificates. There, there you know, if there are not just SSL. Um, authentication certs, there are many other flavors. For example, you know, authentic code for like, you know, digital signing of, of drivers to allow operating systems to trust them and so forth. Um, certificates specify in the certificate where you go for the revocation information of the cert. So, so I would imagine any certs we care about will be specifying where to check for right. their own revocation. That would make and, sense. Yes. And remember, the bad guys can't change that. That's So the bad guys got a certificate that, it, that tells you how to check for its own revocation. It's been digitally signed, and that's why we trust it. 
and encapsulated in that signature is that is the OCSP or other revocation information. Sometimes there is a you know a, a URL that tells your browser go here to check for this certificate's rev- re- revocation. So that certificate will come to our browser if we've told it uh, to re- to require if certificate indicates that what that means is the certificate has said. Here's where you go to check for revocation. So what we need to find are a source of revoked certificates so we can um, verify. And that's what OS, uh, I, OCSP is. Now, High Five said if you hold down the option key, I guess they just don't want you to kind of turn on unless oh, you really want to do it. So it's nice, grayed out it unless you hold down the option key. Then you can say require for all certificates. That's what you want, right? Yeah, I, I would. Yeah. I would run that way. I mean, we need experience with this. This is this this has never been such an issue for us as it is today. So we'll we'll all be developing some experience in, you know, is it like running with no script, which, right. you know, annoys you, Leo, because so many things break. Maybe this will, in which case you'll want to back off. But I would say for like immediately turn on requiring for all certificates and see how that works. So I've turned that on in Keychain Access. That that will cover Safari. I've turned it on in Chrome uh, by going to the Chrome Advanced Settings, scrolling down to the HTTPS SSL section and checking that box. And then Firefox has something similar, yes. And remember that what what this means then is that no site would revoke the certificate they're using. They're revoking the one they were using. Right. So if you ever get a revoked certificate from a site that you're legitimately going to that that's i mean there's no reason that should ever happen that's happening because somebody redirected you and is trying to spoof you right and there are, is a windows uh utility and there might even be on the mac that will do this but that's a pain you don't want to have to go to every site you're going to go to and check before you go to the site you really want it in the browser well, yes. Yeah, so, the, so the solution is we, we need a revoked certificate somewhere. I'm sure somebody will come up with one or maybe there is a test site. To that, test it, that, yeah. Yeah, to test, we, we, we need to just verify that when the browser we're using, whatever we've, browser we've chosen, encounters a revoked certificate, it tells us. And once we know that, then we're okay. Uh, and then, then, then I mean, we're as okay as we can be because now we're still relying on the proper behavior of the web servers. Anyway, it is, uh, you know, th- this is a perfect example of the worst possible kind of vulnerability because it is in a public-facing, ma- hugely used protocol. You know, it's not a malformed image, you know, where... You know, you have to get the right version of of some uh, view. Well, like for example, Office. You know, and a malformed RTF. I mean, it's not content. It's a it's a public, hugely used, openly accessible internet protocol. And it's the you know the actual you know the protocol behind the port is it allows you know essentially the OS to be you know have sixty four k of its in innards exfiltrated. I mean, it's just, it's, it'll keep security guys up at night. Oh, wow. Heart bleed. And now yep. we know how, to, how it works, what to do about it. Thank you, Steve Gibson. Absolutely. Next week, we'll do Q&A. 
And then we'll talk about uh, harvesting entropy in two weeks, which I know everyone's going to find very fascinating. If you uh, want a question for Steve, uh, this would be a good time to go to grc.com slash feedback and leave that question. We'll be taking 10 questions next week. Uh, You can also, while you're there, pick up a copy of Spinrite. Wouldn't hurt. World's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You can also find lots of freebies at Steve's site. Perfect paper passwords and all of that. That's grc.com. 16 kilobit versions of this show uh, are there, audio only. Uh, He also has text transcriptions. We have higher quality audio and video at twit.tv slash SN. Of course, you can always subscribe uh, wherever you'll find the better podcasts. We're right there. Just look for security now. We do the show Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific now. That's our new time, 4 p.m. Eastern time. Is it working out for you, the new the new time? Yeah, I like it a UTC. lot, Leo. It really, gives you time really in the morning does. to prepare. You don't have to rush around. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Steve, we'll see you next week for a Q&A, barring any breaking security <laughs> news. I'm going to, uh, I just got my copy of Windows uh, XP, and I'm going to ah, go install nice. it on all my systems because nice. you said it's safe. It'll be fresh, Leo. <laughs> a nice, fresh install. Yeah, we're going to have a little, yeah. little fun. Whatever you do, don't put that one unpatched on the internet or it'll get taken over immediately by Code Red or Blaster or Ninda right, or right, these other things. Because right. remember, it had a rough start. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget. Remember, remember Balmer strutting around? Windows XP is the most secure operating system we've ever produced. Oh, Lord. And, and my comment at the time was, wait a minute. You can't state that ahead of time (laughs) history the only way you can do it is retrospectively and boy it had a very rough time ironically you probably could say that today that it is because it's been patched so much and it's all the all the obvious holes have been fixed it's 13 years and it's got its firewall on by default and uh, that's that's my position We'll see. We'll see. You know, we'll see. Right <laughs> we'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure that uh, in the next uh, next week we'll have follow up for this. Everything that has happened in the week intervening on on uh, on this catastrophe, and uh, uh, and keep an eye on my Twitter feed because I will let people know as uh, more news evolves. This is a as they say a rapidly unfolding story. I hear people Thanks, tweeting Leo. you as we speak. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk again next week on Security Now.